You're listening to the Folklore Forum, your place to discuss and dissect folk and fairy tales. Hello, welcome to the Folklore Forum. In this episode, we're going to dive into what folklore is all about, why it's important, does it matter, and is it still relevant today? So if you're ready to escape into the realm of folklore and fairy tales, then come on in. The forum is now open. What is folklore? The dictionary defines folklore as the traditional beliefs, customs, and stories of a community passed down through the generations by word of mouth. This can include anything from nursery rhymes to superstitions, habits, beliefs, songs, stories, etc. When it comes to folklore, many people mistakenly believe it covers things from the far past. But the reality is that what some people consider folklore is often a contemporary practice for others. So if folklore means that it's passed down through the generations, this can be something from your your great-grandparents' time. And in some cultures, it might be something that we've lost. So learning about it is studying something from the past, rediscovering something from the past. But for other communities, it might be something that has continued to be passed down and is still practiced or believed in today. Which brings us to why does folklore matter? Everyone's going to have their own reasons for being fascinated with folklore. It's an entire field of study. You can get degrees in folklore. There are many, many different reasons why people enjoy folklore. The main reasons why I'm fascinated by folklore and think it deserves its own podcast and its own community is that folklore is a way of connecting with our past. Folklore is a way to help us understand where we come from. Now, I kind of stumbled into this folklore focus after researching my family genealogy. I started with Icelandic genealogy because Icelanders are sort of known for being obsessed with genealogical records and mapping out relationships. If you've ever opened up a saga or heard someone talk about it, you know, it kind of sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings. You're introduced to a character who is the son of so-and-so and the son of so-and-so and the son of so-and-so. I have Icelandic ancestry through my mother's side of the family. Her father was born in Canada, but to parents who were both from the Icelandic immigrant community in Manitoba. And discovering my ancestry through those Icelandic immigrants, once I found the right connections of who had the information and what, it was relatively easy. And there was the records that showed exactly the movements of my ancestors, where they left from in Iceland and what year, where they came to when they came to Canada, where they settled. All that information was available to me once I knew where to look. I mean, there's a wonderful genealogical organization called Icelandic Roots. So if you are of Icelandic descent in North America, they are the people to help you map out your ancestry. As most Canadian Canadians of European descent are, and increasingly many Canadians of all backgrounds, we become a mix of different ancestries and heritages, and it can be 
fun to explore them all. I know that I have Scottish ancestry and English ancestry and German as well. And if you go back 300 years, I'm also, you can trace my ancestors from Denmark and Norway. You know, those are, the, you know, within the seven to 10 generations ago, you go back further, then you really get into seeing where people moved. I find those DNA genealogy tests interesting. I've never taken one and I don't know anyone personally who has. I've just heard stories of people who do and it's interesting that you might take it and it might indicate that you're Norwegian or, you know, Scottish or something and you never knew you had an ancestor from that area. But what does that really mean? Because if you keep going further and further back, you know, your Norwegian ancestors might have come from the Germanic tribes and they might have had genetics brought in from like the Mediterranean, like intermixing with Roman. What I've come to learn is that with folklore too, it helps us see the connections between cultures. It's not only shining a light on our ancestry and where we're from and the movement of people that we're directly related to or descended of, the commonalities between different folktales shows us the similarities between countries that are next door to each other and on the opposite side of the globe. In the realm of folklore studies, there is an entire catalog of story threads. I call them story threads, but categories that map out certain motifs, themes, plots, and all the cultures that have been studied, you can take a story and put it into one of these themes. And then you can see, okay, the evil stepmother is a common theme like throughout all of these cultures. Or the shape-shifting animal is in common in all of these cultures. And that's one way to categorize them to find those similarities. What I prefer, and this is because I have not studied folklore as a academic pursuit, but more as a way of getting in touch with who I am, where I come from, and to learn more about the context in which my ancestors were living. I like to look at those similarities to find the entertainment value, to find the inspiration in them, and just to have fun. It makes all the difference if you're learning about your great-grandparents and you know what stories they were probably hearing at bedtime or around a fire in the middle of winter. It just makes the lives that they live feel more real. And that being said, knowing when and where stories sort of emerged helps us understand in what climate those stories were being told. Now with folklore, of course, these are stories that were passed down generations and generations by word of mouth, just because they were written down in the 1800s, 1900s, doesn't mean that they were created then. It just means somebody thought, let's preserve these. Let's write them down into a collection so that people can have access to them in case we forget them or lose them or we just want to spread the written word more. But it does help us to know, okay, so in what was happening in the 1800s when these were written down that might influence how they were written down. And who wrote them down? Who was, who was telling these stories for those collections at that time? And what might have been their influences or their biases or their perspectives that maybe tweaked what they wrote? 
As we go along with this podcast series, I am going to dedicate entire episodes to different famous folklorists from history. Now, every country and region has their own stars, and some of the more commonly known ones from Europe would be the Grimm brothers from Germany, Hans Christian Andersen from Denmark, other ones that I know of that are stand out for me was Jon Arnesen from Iceland, Asbjörnsen and Mo from Norway. I want to have a complete episode dedicated to these folklorists to tell their stories, just to give the context of when they were writing the stories down and how they were writing them down. But for now, it's, it's good to just know that there was a trend in the early 1800s into the 1900s for scholars, or in the case of the Grimm's brothers, one of them was a linguist, to either travel their countries to collect the stories or call for submissions from their fellow countrymen. And hence we get these German collections, Scottish collections, Icelandic collections. But when you look at where they heard the stories, you realize that not all these stories came from that particular country, or just because they were written down from a German source doesn't mean in France they had the same tale, or in England there's a similar version. And so it's a mistake, I think, to look at the Grimm Brothers stories and think these are German, because they were written down by German people, of course, and they were stories that were heard in Germany, but one of their biggest sources was a woman who was born in France. And so stories, they just don't have borders and boundaries the way we might associate today. So it's just important to keep that in mind. So is folklore relevant today? Of course it is. I mean, beyond connecting us with our past and our ancestors and providing entertainment, folklore is still inspiring us. I mean, you can see it in TV and film, podcasts. This is not the only folklore podcast out there. Many, many books. Folklore inspires us today. It connects us. And it shows us what we used to believe and be afraid of and maybe still are. And not only this. We want to replicate the legacy that folklore implies. Powerful stories that still live today that were being told hundreds of years ago. It's impressive and it's aspirational. And one of the biggest examples in recent, recent years is from musician, singer-songwriter Taylor Swift. She launched an album in 2020 called Folklore. And in an announcement on her Instagram, she declared this, In isolation, my imagination has run wild, and this album is the result. A collection of songs and stories that flowed like a stream of consciousness Picking up a pen was my way of escaping into fantasy, history, and memory. I've told these stories to the best of my ability, with all the love, wonder, and whimsy they deserve. Now it's up to you to pass them down. Folklore is out now. She dropped a full-length album featuring magical songs with influences of pop and folk in a legendary move that Swift fans will talk about for generations. I think she will be successful. People will treasure those vinyls and pass them down as heirlooms in their family because she has diehard fans. And between writing down points for this episode and recording it, I 
also saw ads on Instagram for another great musician, Florence and the Machine. She has a new album out as well, and the ad for it paints it as, you know, an, it's a collection of fairy tale songs. And I'm not gonna lie, I saw it and I'm like, oh, I need to go listen to this now. I need to hear it because that just promises something that still resonates with us or resonates with people like me, which is probably you too if you're listening to this. One last point to make on explaining what folklore is, is noting the difference between folk and fairy tales because they're often lumped together and they're both amazing and there is a reason why they have different names. A good friend of mine who is a folklorist explained it to me like this. Folk tales are based in a location. They sound like they might really have happened at some point in time. Even if there's a magical element, it's usually associated with a place, like haunting of a building or a farm or a landscape. It might be due with creatures named after a location, like, like Loch Ness, the Ogopogo of Okanagan Lake, those sorts of tales. It could be a story that's centered on a particular village, town, farm, etc. And these can include stories of magical creatures. There, I can think of, in Scotland, there's the Selkie of Sanday, which is a place. In Iceland, that seal person story is associated with the south of Iceland. It doesn't necessarily name a town, but it is associated with the southern region. In Iceland, there are certain elf stories that are particular to a certain region of the country, while others are not. Same with trolls. In Norway and Iceland, there are specific land forms that have a troll story. Fairy tales are more fantastical and can typically happen anywhere and at any time. It's like it starts off with once upon a time or long, long ago in a faraway place, in a galaxy far away. <laughs> it's a fairy tale. These are things like Rumpelstiltskin, The Little Mermaid, although because it's written by the Danish author, you would just assume it's somewhere near Denmark, but we don't really know. Um, Ashlad Tales, they don't specify the kingdom, they just say there is a kingdom. And again, there are troll stories and elf stories and fairy stories that don't come with a specific setting, so they could be easily be transplanted from culture to culture, country to country, and those are considered more fairy tales. Doesn't have to be about a fairy, but we'll get more into that in another episode. So we have folk tales, fairy tales, which are the stories, and then we have folklore, which covers so many things about human lives, lifestyles, beliefs, practices, and all that stuff. And it all comes together. I have an upcoming episode on Hans Christian Andersen that will perfectly illustrate the importance of knowing your own family history and putting it into the context of the bigger history, especially with folktales. I can't wait to share that with you. That'll either be next episode three or it'll be episode four, but it's coming up in June. Now, if you're feeling a bit foggy on the details of many beloved folk and fairy tales, I've got nine book recommendations for you. The details of these books will be also be on the website just go to www.folkloreforum.org forward slash 102. You'll also get that link in the podcast notes. 
It'll also be on my website with a link and the buy links to Amazon if you want a quick order. It'll all be there for you so you don't have to memorize or take notes unless you want to. So let me give you nine book recommendations for me to get you started. And these are sort of European centric from the countries that I'm most connected to. In the future, we'll do different episodes that focus on more, more books to choose from, including, you know, if you have a favorite book, come tell us. But let's start with these nine, just to get you started. The first one is Angela Carter's Book of Fairy Tales. Angela Carter was an English novelist, short story writer, poet, and journalist most known for her feminist works and use of magical realism to create rich, evocative stories. Angela Carter's Book of Fairy Tales is a dense book that I would recommend for anyone 13 and older who wants a well-rounded global experience of folk and fairy tales with strong female characters, including cunning women, devious aunts, odd sisters, skilled midwives, bewitching enchantresses, and mysterious old ladies. I had a wonderful collection of fairy tales with Sleeping Beauty and other stories. And Angela Carter had, I can't remember if she had rewritten them all, but each story ended with a moral that was written by her. And they were very, um, it was for children, but it was very radical. It was very feminist. I loved it. And as an adult, when I discovered who she was, I was so thrilled to have that. It's in storage somewhere. I, I, someday I will read an example for you guys, but, um, I highly recommend Angela Carter's work. My second recommendation is An Illustrated Treasury of Scottish Folk and Fairy Tales. This is by Teresa Breslin, the author, and Kate Laper as the illustrator. And it's a gorgeous, large-sized book of folk and fairy tales. And I recommend it for all ages, whether you're reading for your kids, grandkids, or just enjoying it yourself with a hot cup of tea. Teresa and Kate will transport you to the magical landscapes of Scotland. Teresa Breslin is a Scottish author and winner of several literary awards, including the prestigious Carnegie Medal and Scottish Book Trust's Outstanding Achievement Award. And she's the author of over 50 other works. Kate Laper is a Scotland-based children's book illustrator with a fascination with myths and folklore. Her intricate drawings are inspired by animals and nature, and she even hosts workshops for kids focused on drawing dragons and making selkie sock puppets. I would love to attend one of those. <laughs> but her skills are evident from the gorgeous cover of this book. It's dragon's mouth. I love it. Book number three is called Scottish Myths and Legends by Daniel Allison. He is an acclaimed Scottish storyteller, author, host of the House of Legends podcast, and creator of the Roundhouse School of Storytelling. His book, Scottish Myths and Legends, retells the lore of Scotland, steeped in tradition with modern insights and flavor. I got this book for Christmas and I am just loving it. I read his version and then I read the, from the kids' illustration version just to get a more simplistic overview of the stories. And it's a great, it's a great companion read because his is way more it's for adults and it's a little more extensive on the stories and more fleshed out into a contemporary short story. I highly recommend it as well. Okay, books number four and five. I couldn't resist 
They are both by Alda Sigmund's daughter from Iceland. So book number four is The Little Book of the Hidden People, 20 Stories of Elves from Icelandic Folklore. This is a personal favorite of mine because there are a lot of misconceptions about Icelanders and their so-called belief in elves or hidden people. The truth is our ancestors did have many stories about Hildefolk, which means hidden people. Some of them are happy, some are tragic, and some of them just plain bizarre. And Alta does a beautiful job retelling some of those stories, along with an analysis of why each type of tale might have been told, and the significance of how they reflect Icelandic society of centuries past. So if you think Icelanders all still believe in elves, you really need to read this book, because it's not true. <laughs> it's not true, and the stories are way more nuanced and fascinating than that. And book number five, so by Alda as well, is called Icelandic Folk Legends, Tales of Apparitions, Outlaws, and Things Unseen. The Icelandic nation has a long and rich history of storytelling throughout centuries, characterized by hardship, poverty, and dark winters, 24 hours of darkness. The Icelanders kept their spirits high and moral values intact by telling each other stories. And in this collection of 15 Icelandic folk legends, we get a glimpse of the worldview of the Icelanders in centuries past, beyond just elf stories, as they endeavored to understand and cope with the natural phenomena around them. There are stories of malicious ghosts, outlaws living in carved out boulders, hidden people residing in grassy knolls, trolls that are tripped up by their own stupidity, and much more. In addition, there is one story exemplifying a fairy tale motif that scholars have discovered to be unique to Iceland, and that is of the good stepmother, the story of Himinbjörg. Throughout this book, we get a powerful sense of the Icelanders' belief, values, and fears, as well as their strong need to cling to all that was pure and good. Book number six is called The Guardians of Iceland by Heidi Herman. Heidi's collection of Icelandic fairy tales and legends include stories of trolls, magic, more hidden people, creatures of the sea, giants, shape-shifting seals, that's a tongue twister, and dragons in disguise. You can discover all of them in her fun collection of tales that were passed from generation to generation. Heidi is also a Western Icelander and a friend of mine, and I highly recommend her book. Recommendation number seven is another illustrated treasury, this time of Grimm's fairy tales. It includes Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Hansel and Gretel, and many more classic stories. It's beautifully illustrated by Daniela Drescher and contains some of the most famous Grimm stories, along with many others that have not yet been turned into modern movies. And there might be a reason for that, but you'll have to find out. This collection is suited for children and adults who are young and adventurous at heart. Recommendation number eight is Nordic Tales, which is put out by Chronicle Books. It's one of many in a series of folklore fairy tales from countries around the world, but the Nordic Tales is a collection of 16 traditional tales from the enchanting world of Nordic folklore. It's translated and transcribed by folklorists in the 19th century. And the stories are at once magical, hilarious, cozy, and chilling. Welcome to a world of mystical adventure where trolls haunt the snowy forests, terrifying monsters roam the open sea, a young woman journeys to the end of the world, and a boy proves he knows no fear. 
And last but not least, number nine, an illustrated treasury of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. Hans' classic tales of foolish emperors, lonely mermaids, icy queens, and clever princesses have delighted children and adults alike for nearly two centuries. The story's unique magic and wonder make them essential reading for any childhood or adulthood. And this beautifully illustrated collection of his best loved fairy tales includes The Little Mermaid, The Snow Queen, Thumbelina, Princess and the Pea, and The Emperor's New Clothes. Now, I believe that if you are going to purchase a collection, or take off from the library even, a collection of folk and fairy tales, I believe you should find an illustrated version. Well, novels don't need images, but old stories, they just, they speak volumes more when there's a beautiful painting or drawing or sketch or woodcut paired with them. That's just my personal opinion. If you're going to get a collection of fairy tales, go for the one with the illustrations. Now, if you're looking for a small dose of summer adventure or a quick weekend read that ties into folklore, Ashlad is the perfect escape. Can a clumsy farm boy and sword-wielding princess defeat an ancient sea dragon? You can find out in my new short story, Ashlad and the Sea Dragon. This Orkney spin on a classic Norwegian folktale perfectly illustrates the lasting legacy of migrating people. You can get your free copy of Ashlad and the Sea Dragon anytime at the website www.folkloreforum.org forward slash Ashlad. The link will be in the podcast notes, so you can just click on that for easy finding. Do you have an opinion on a folktale or fairy tale? Have a recommendation for a book or movie that covers folklore? Then please come share your stories, reflections, and opinions on the website. Just go to folkloreforum.org and click on the contact page. You might just hear your story on a future episode of the podcast. New episodes are released every other Friday on the website, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and most places where you can find podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, I'm Natalie Good Thompson, and this has been the Folklore Forum. <laughs>